I have a vocabulary test for you today. Starts easy. Then we'll move up a little bit, all right? If I were to, and I don't know if this is really vocabulary or not, but that's what I'm calling it, all right? If I were to ask you what a group of cattle are, you would say it is a, thank you very much. A group of dogs is a, thank you very much. A group of elephants is a herd. A group of bats is a colony. All right, those are the easy ones. The rest of these I've never ever heard of before. All right. A group of goats is a noise. Yes, they're noisy. Yes. A group of goats is called a tribe or a trip. Your son is a group of goats. Just want to. I don't know who named all these things. A group of giraffes is a tower. Isn't that interesting? Who even knew that moles ever were in a group? (laughs) But if moles were in a group, they would be called a labor. Why? Porcupines are the best answer. A group of porcupines is called a prickle. (laughs) Doggone. Frogs, a group of frogs are called an army. But a group of toads are called a knot. A knot. And then, who ever knew that you would ever need to call a group of jellyfish, anything at all. But if you were to need to call a group of jellyfish anything, you would call them a smack. (laughs) Funny how that's the same thing you do to your teenage children. (laughs) All right, so the final double points for this one. A group of Christians is called a... Amen. Amen. Church, thank you very much. So that's what we're going to be talking about today, church. The church was first called church by Christ in Matthew 16, 18. And there he says to Peter, you know that the scenario perhaps, they're um, at Caesarea Philippi, and they're talking, and Jesus says to the, to P, to the disciples there who's with him, he says, who do, who, who do the people say I am? And they answer him a lot of stuff. You know, oh, you're Elijah, you're a prophet, you're, a, you know, so and forth. And, and Peter says, you are the Messiah. And Christ responds and he says, Peter, you did, not, you did not know that, but God revealed that to you. And he says, and then he says this, and I will build my, and, and I say also to Peter, I will build upon this rock, I will build my church. First time the Lord uses the word, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. It's only used two times, the word is only used two times in the Gospels at all. Both in Matthew, later on in Matthew 18, talking about bringing, bringing an offender or someone before the church, he says. But I do want to pause right here on this particular passage because there is confusion about this passage and there are different interpretations of this passage. So while this is not everything we're talking about, it's important that we just pause and we say something about it. So the Lord says there, you know, 
Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven did. And upon this rock, I will build my church. There are many who would say that that's why Peter is really important in ecclesiology, in church history. But the point of the passage is not who said something. The point of the passage is the truth he spoke. And the truth he spoke in the passage is that you're the Messiah. And he says, upon that truth, not upon you, Peter, upon that truth, I will build my church. And so there are many who feel differently about that. And, you know, that's allowable and everything. But I believe that this is a more accurate interpretation, and it's really what the Lord was saying here. Upon this truth, that I am the Messiah, that is what I'm going to build my, truth, my church, all right? So um, church is used about 114 times in the New Testament. Most of the time it's in Acts and Corinthians, where Paul is doing a lot of remediation work there. And, and a matter of fact, even in uh, the article, the post that uh, Pastor Steve did this week, he's referencing the Corinthian church quite a bit there, and that's why. And then also in Revelation. But the Greek term that is used um, in, in this is ecclesia. It, it's ecclesia. It comes from two words, ek and kaleo. And those two words mean out from and to call. And so this term ecclesia, it was really not, it was not a a religious term to begin with. It was already a very common Greek term that meant, you know, the assembling of people. And so what it meant was an assembly of people convened at the public place of council for the purpose of deliberating. You see that in Acts 19, where there, there is, there's been another controversy in the public square, and Paul is, is dealing with trouble in the Ephesians church. And right there they say in, in Acts 19.39, but if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in a lawful assembly. It shall be settled in an, ecclesia, in an ecclesia. And so the term had a very typical everyday usage. I mean, we would call people together to discuss this. Call people together to hear about this. And so they were called people to come together to discuss it. That's where the church, the word comes from. The word church not only expresses the called out feature of believers, but also refers to Christians in two different ways. So one way it refers to Christians is all Christians. Universal, invisible church. That's all Christians who are, that are in the world at all. Any Christian, any Christian in any of the world is part of the church. That's big C, the universal church you might hear it referred to, or the invisible church you might hear it referred to. Then there is another reference there where it is a local gathering of the church. This is a local gathering of the church. What we have done here today would be referred to as the church. We have gathered together to hear. That is at its most fundamental meaning. But as Christ has knit the church together, and as Paul taught, he grew and he expanded that meaning of the church as it goes on. So when you talk about we're the little church, so to speak, we're a local gathering of people. And you see that Paul references it like in 1 Corinthians 1. He says the church of God that is at Corinth. In Galatians 1, he says the churches of Galatia. Um, in, in 1 Thessalonians 1, he says the church of the Thessalonians. So 
Any smaller gathering is also the church. The term church signifies the body of baptized believers, all right, who have been saved out of the world by the gospel, over which Christ rules as the head, so Christ rules as the head of the church, and in, in, in which the Spirit dwells, and it is the body of Christ made up of individual saints. That's an awful lot. We'll still be talking about that more as we study the church. And so in 1 Corinthians 12, um, Paul wrote, For it is, it is the body, for, for as the body is one, and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body. So as Christ, now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. So the body is made up of individual saints, called out of the world, in which often meet, together in assemblies. Two things in that definition that we want to pay attention to. One is that the church is made up of saved people. The church is made up of people who have placed their faith in Christ. Robert Saucy in his book, The Church and God's Program, says, the roots of this new community were planted in the command, follow me. So Christ said to his very first disciple, follow me. That was just the simple command, follow me. And based upon that command, that is what he is saying to any man, woman, or child who places their faith in Christ, such as John did when he was 12, such as I did when I was in sixth grade. Whoever you may have been, when you trusted Christ as your Savior, you received a call that said, follow me. And, from abandoned, and so from abandoned disciples, his followers became the nucleus of the church, which acknowledged him as Lord and Savior, for it owned its very existence to his person and work. So... It started with a few men, and it grew to more than 70 at one time. And then it grew, in Acts we see that it grew to, into the thousands. And now it's into the billions, and it includes you and I or any of us in this room who have placed our faith in Christ. And then the second part of that is in whom the Spirit dwells. So we are believers. We come into this room. We have placed our faith in Christ. And as soon as we place our faith in Christ, the Spirit indwells us. There's a lot to be learned about that, but that's not our subject today. But the Spirit indwells us. Christ lives in his church through the indwelling of his, of his Spirit in his people. Now, we saw that because Christ said so. He said in John 14, he's talking about, I'm going to be leaving you. And when I leave you, I'm going to send a helper to come and help you. And he will reveal all truth to you. He'll convict you of sin. He will encourage you. And that helper, the Holy Spirit, has bound us together. While some of us in this room have nothing in common in the physical world, nothing at all, perhaps, we have a great deal in common in the spiritual world. Because the Spirit of Christ that indwells me is the same Spirit of Christ that indwells Sean. And that's about all we have in common, I think. Is it, Sean? I think so. Except for we're both incredibly handsome. Those are two things we have in common. I didn't get an amen out of that, did I? All right. Yeah, I know you didn't mean it. And so that spirit of Christ knits us together in a way that that is eternal even. So, um, So there's one body and one spirit just as you were, all, were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So here's the Spirit. 
over all, through all, and in all. It knits us together. The ministry of the church is to be done in the power of the Spirit and through the gifts of the Spirit that each of us have who have confessed Christ. Now, about a month from now, maybe not even that long, um, and I, hope, I think you're going to hear it next week, we're going to announce a workshop for spiritual gifts. So if you've never explored what your spiritual gift is, there'll be a workshop coming up very soon, and you can uh, opt into that and get to attend it. And it'll, it'll be a part of the process of helping you to identify your spiritual gift. So that's just a mention there, a shout-out to that. So while there are many Christians, a many gathering of humans, only the church is a gathering of humans with a supernatural dynamic to it that gives into it, gives to us by the Holy Spirit. In my perhaps my most favorite book on the local church, George Miley wrote in Loving the Church and Blessing the Nations, he said this, The church as God designed her to be is stunningly beautiful. She is the visible body in whom Christ resides, the fullest manifestation of him on earth until he returns in glory. She is a bride, an exquisitely delightful young woman, being prepared by the Father for the marriage to his son. Churches are magnificent. There must be more of them everywhere. I think I said a couple weeks ago, and I probably said it wrongly in hindsight, you know, about that, that we represent God. But really, I, I believe that instead, we allow God to live through us and represent himself in our lives. It, it, and it's really like this. We open up the curtain of our lives, and we allow God to put on a show of his greatness and his glory in us. Okay, so you're like going, I didn't know I had curtains. I didn't know I had a stage. Um, uh, how much more longer do we have of this? A lot of things, all right? Let me talk to you about your stage for God's glory and greatness in you. I could walk through this room and I could point to all your stories and I would say that whatever story you have in your life that God is working you through or has worked you through is a stage of his glory and greatness. And so, for instance, um, one time, not too long ago, a dear friend of mine lost his job unjustly. And the way that he dealt with that was a stage for God's glory and greatness. And we asked him to teach about that up here up front. And so recently, I had the opportunity to walk with a friend who had a similar experience. And so I said, you need to listen to how God dealt with Gary, and Gary responded to God. Therein was a stage for Gary to allow God to live in him and through him and for God to represent himself in a way that Gary could never do, in a way that any of us could never do. But we yield ourselves to God and we say, what is it you want? What is it you are doing today in my life? And that is the way that he lives through us as individuals. But it's not only that. It's that is the way he lives with us as people. In April, story time, in April of 2003, Aaron Ralston decided to take a hike in the canyons of the John, Blue John Canyon in Utah, not far from his home. Aaron was known to go hiking for days alone without telling anyone, so no one thought much about it when he had not been heard of for five days. As he was descending a particular 
narrow canyon, an 800-pound boulder came in after him and pinned his arm to the wall of the canyon. He had his cell phone with him, but being so far out, he had no signal. So that is a picture of Aaron Ralston and his arm pinned behind an 800-pound boulder. He had 12 ounces of water and two burritos. Now, I like burritos, but they're just not enough after five days. And he had a multi-purpose tool, he said, that he had gotten for free when he bought a flashlight. After three days of trying to lift and to break the boulder, he was dehydrated and delirious. And he prepared to amputate his arm at the point and the midpoint of his forearm. After having experimented with tourniquets and made some exploratory superficial cuts, he realized on the fourth day that in order to free his arm, he would have to break it with the tools he had with him, but they were insufficient to do so. He'd have to cut through it is what he thought. After running out of food and water on the fifth day, he carved his name, his birth date, and that date on the wall of the canyon. Because that was, he thought, would be the day he'd die. He didn't expect to make it through the night. And after waking up at dawn the next morning, he had an epiphany, it says, that he could break his arm and then cut it off with his two-inch dull knife. It took him an hour to do that. Then he had to travel eight miles to get back to his vehicle. And in the course of that eight miles, he had to rappel down a 60-foot wall. He had gotten to the end of the wall, had got on flat ground, and was on his way back when a family of hiking found him there and contacted the authorities. It took 13 men, a winch, and a hydraulic jack to move that boulder out of that canyon there. Today... He continues to hike and mountaineer. He became the first person to ever solo climb in the winter all 59 of the 14ers in Colorado. If you're not familiar with that, that is, there are 59 peaks of 14,000 feet or higher in Colorado. He was the first to solo climb them all in the winter. As you can tell from the photograph, he has not allowed this to slow him down. We are knit into a family. We are knit into the body of Christ. And we are not meant to go into canyons by ourselves. We are not meant to try and traverse those things by ourselves. Matter of fact, I would have to say that Too many of us have lost limbs, or worse yet, have lost our faith as we've tried to wander away from the Lord and as we've tried to figure out how to do things on our own. Matter of fact, I'll just have to say that if I ever see any of us say, you know what, and and I'm saying this because it's happened. If I ever hear any of us say, you know what, Um, I'm just not connecting here at Crossing. I'm just not getting fed here at Crossing. I'm just not, and you fill in the blank, and they say, I'm going to go to this church. And that church is a much larger church. 
I watch. I watch over time because more than a few times I've watched that person go to a large church because they're looking for a quiet, isolated place that they can go to that is really big where no one will ever miss them. They're looking to go it alone. But if they were to try and do that in a small group like us, someone would say, I haven't seen you. What's going on with you? Where are you? Why aren't you here? So it's much easier to go to a much larger place with multiple services especially. That's very strategic in this kind of scenario. To go to a much larger place with multiple services so that you can say, oh, I go to the other service. You just haven't seen me. And then quietly slip into a narrow canyon and then ultimately find yourself pinned there. And their faith seems to be smashed in the walls. I've seen it happen. I'll give you names. You know some of them. They decided to want to go alone. And so they've gone someplace and they got lost doing so. Let me just say that whatever God is doing in your life, he is doing that in our church. You might not believe that. And there might be some exceptions to that. But I am so convinced of that. Whatever struggle you're going through, you're going through it so you can help another person probably in our church. You know, 2 Corinthians even says as much. I love this passage, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4. And it says, Blessed be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies, God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which with we ourselves have received. In other words, whatever God is doing in your life, He is going to comfort you in that. And whatever comfort you got from that is then yours to take out and give to someone else. And so, whatever God is doing in your life, He is not just doing that to you. He's doing that in our church. If God is healing you of a sickness or a sin, He doesn't do that because you're His favorite. I mean, you know... Brubaker hadn't dodged the bullet because God likes him a lot. He did it so that Scott would write these little tracks about how God had healed him and how his faith in God had carried him through that so that God would give him away to anybody who even said they had a cold. He healed Scott so that Scott could proclaim his glory. And every single one of us, many of us, have similar types of stories but you want to know something? If, but when we, and, and I, this gets into issues of I'm just a private person. I don't know what to do with that. I understand it. I really do because there are things that I am private about as well. But when we go through something and God heals us of a sin or a sickness or he comforts us in some way and, and no one ever knows we went through that, 
No one ever, no one know. If Scott had gone through his thing and he'd gone through his entire sickness and he had never really talked to us about it and never really let us pray for him about it, no one would ever go to Todd and, I mean, go to Scott and say, Scott, I've just been diagnosed. Can you tell me how you walked through that? They wouldn't know it because they didn't know he went through it. And so God is not doing things in your life just because he likes you or because he wants you to stick around a little longer or whatever. He's doing it because you are in the body of Christ here at Crossing. And he intends to use your situation in such a way that you can help somebody else with it. So if you're struggling with a sin or a situation, think of how encouraging it would be if you knew that someone else in Crossing was going through that too or had gone through the same thing. You could go to them. And not have to walk through the canyon alone. You just might be able to survive it if you had someone go with you. You're not giving your spiritual gifts just because God wants to bless you in some special way. You're giving your spiritual gifts so that you can use them to bless others and to serve others with them. And many would just say, well, church is just too hurtful. It's just people will stab you in the back. People are going to talk about you. I just can't do that. This week, Pastor Steve wrote the article, The, Ch- the Church is Full of Messed Up People. People, have been, people might have hurt you, and they might have done it on purpose, or they might have done it unintentionally. That is, that is the dark side of being around people in general. But sin, but sometimes when it's unintentional, other times when it's, it's, it's sin is intentional, I'm sorry, but sin is never private. And if it was ever intentional, it seeps out like a slow water leak. And it eventually will be found out. And it is always God will deal with it in eternity anyway. But quite honestly, we are always, to a varying degree, a mess around here anyway. Don't think otherwise. And so is every other church. So is, is, is you know, whether you're... You're a Matt Chandler wannabe or a John Piper wish you were or whatever you may be. You know, you know, that church is a mess because people are in it. But George Miley says this, and I'm really grateful for it. None of this alters the messiness of people. None of it alters the magnificence of God's original design. On the contrary, it provides a backdrop that highlights the breathtaking dimensions of God's grace in the face of human waywardness. Even our failures and sin are used by our wonderful Father. There are many, I mean, I'll even, I'll even go there today. John and I batted heads in a most tremendous scenario. It was just like two of those big goats on a mountainside. But it just wasn't me. John was doing that with a few people in that, and a few people were doing it back and forth. You know what? That quote up there is a testimony to God's grace to work through difficult things for hearts to be healed and for love to stand tall. That he is still here today and going to become an elder depending on this vote. God's design for us when we are hurt, when we're offended, when we things have not gone well, and I have experienced that in my time here, especially prior to being a pastor, is for us to stand our ground, to seek resolution, 
to love and be loved and to forgive. And that is a great statement to the glory of God because the world cannot say they can do that. But we in the church can. So you are important to our church. You need to be here. You need to be in a small group. You need to be in a Bible study. You need to be on a ministry team. You need to be in a mentoring relationship. Not because you need something else to do, but because it's in those relationships where God uses us in each other's lives. Don't miss church for lame, stupid reasons. Be here. Be involved. Engage with the people around you because God wants to use your life in theirs and their life in yours. That's the way he's designed it. That's why he's knit us together. That's how his spirit's going to work among us. Your walk with God needs it, and my walk with God needs it as well. All right, let's pray.